Good morning. Today's reading is from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through verse 20. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. The preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. So if you don't know me, my name is Joe. I am the youth director here. I uh, just feel really honored to be able to be here and preach to you guys, to be able to teach you, to be able to lead you through the word of God. And so thank you for that. If you don't know my story, I got saved in this church. This ministry was very effective in my life. And so I think it's really cool that this church was so influential in my life that I got saved, and now I'm here preaching to you guys. Um, It's all a work of God, all the grace of God. The title to this sermon is, Who is Jesus? One of the questions that Jesus famously asked his disciples in Matthew 16 is, Who do you think I am? As Paul wrote to the Colossians, he sought to answer this question. He wanted to address the many uh, heresies, the many false teachings that were coming into the church. And the question was, who is Jesus? This is not an outdated question. Everyone in the whole entire world has to answer this question. Every major religion, every major organization has to answer, who is Jesus? Every synagogue, every mosque, every anti-religious group has to answer, who is Jesus? As a church, we are confronted with this question daily. Who is Jesus? And if we were to examine our lives, if we were to examine the way we live or the way we think, we have to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? And that will be the question of today's sermon, but before we do this, please join me in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you are God who is mighty, powerful, and is also loving and knows us down every hair on our heads. As we seek to know you deeper, or maybe for the first time, will you please reveal yourself through your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach each one of us in our hearts and our minds. May you be the Lord of the throne of our hearts. May you have dominion over every thought in our mind. May you use us as a church to bring you glory. May the Holy Spirit speak to us. 
All right, so this is probably my favorite passage in Scripture, okay? I love it. Uh, when I did my notes, I had 43 pages of notes, um, and I'll spare you 43 pages. Uh, I've been studying this for a while, so it comes up. Um, the Puritans, they would take one verse, and they would write a 500-page book on that one verse, and they did this multiple times. So this is dense. This is a theologically dense section, and uh, we're not going to get to all of it. So, um, yeah. This is a hymn. Hymns were very important for the church at the time because after the resurrection of Jesus, you had a period of 20 to 40 years where there wasn't the New Testament yet, right? So the people of the New Testament church were writing hymns so that they would know the key doctrines of the church. Think about creeds, uh, think about uh, catechisms. This was supposed to be like a creed or a catechism. Paul also writes this particular hymn because he is just captivated by the wonder in person and work of Jesus that he has to express his theology in worship. And this leads to just the foundation of the book. It's all about Jesus. It's all about praising and worshiping Jesus. So when the church of Colossa was confronted with the question of who is Jesus, they, Paul was correcting all of the bad theology about the church. There was a lot of chaos at the time. There was a lot of persecution. People were, uh, pastors were leaving. Uh, you know, church leaders were being arrested. Uh, you know, people were walking away from the faith. And Paul needed to correct this. The way I think about this is, think about a stream, right? Say you live downstream, and upstream there is a company. They've polluted your water, and your water starts to get all uh, gross and mucky, right? Think about this part as the church. Paul seeks to go back up here and correct the issue, So he doesn't just start with the church. He starts with Jesus. All right. Uh, If you have a Bible, uh, take your Bible out. Um, I want you guys, uh, you know, I don't want you to take notes because I think my sermon will be amazing. I want you to take notes because I'll reference a lot of scripture. And I want you to be able to come back and, uh, you know, look at that scripture for yourself. I'm just going to mention it. All right. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What does it mean to be the image of the invisible God? I think as Paul wrote this text, he had Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4 in mind. These are the Ten Commandments. There is... Uh, The second commandment where it is commanded that you shall not have any images or likenesses to worship. So uh, all the rest of the world at the time, they had idols. They had statues that they could bow down to and worship. But God said no. When Israel struggled the most with their idolatry, they struggled with worshiping statues. You have Baal and Moloch. These were false gods that the people around them would worship. We even have the golden calf after uh, 
Moses goes up to the mountain. And then later when the kingdom is divided, you have the two golden calves so that people don't go down to Israel. I mean to Judah. What Paul is telling us here is that Jesus reveals God perfectly. The point is simply this. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the invisible God. If you want to have an empirical, verifiable experience, rather than just a theory or idea of who God is, you go to Jesus. The book of Hebrews, he is called the express image of his person, the brightness of his glory. This is a direct expression of deity. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Just because the people of Israel couldn't see God doesn't mean that he wasn't there and doesn't mean that they didn't see him. Jesus shows us in scripture and he shows up way before his birth. In the Old Testament, these are called theophanies and Christophanies. We see this throughout the Old Testament. I'm going to give you a few examples, not all of them. But we see in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Genesis 12, 17 and 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham and spoke to him. In Genesis 32, Jacob even wrestles with someone he later identifies as God. He says, I have seen God face to face. In Exodus 24, we read that Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel went up to Mount Sinai and they saw the God of Israel. Exodus 33, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. We see this in God appearing in the clouds of smoke and fire, the burning bush where a voice addresses Moses by name from the fire And the voice identifies himself as God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Think Exodus 13, where we're told that the Lord went before the people of Israel by day in a pillar of clouds to lead them by their way. The angel of the Lord, but who is unlike any other angels, is treated as worthy of worship and who identifies with God himself. He's worshipped, and we're told that only God alone can be worshipped. Think Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is before the throne of God, Daniel 3, the fiery furnace where there is a fourth person that appears. 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul speaks of God's people in the Old Testament being led through the wilderness by Christ. In the book of Jude, He says that God was the one who delivered God's people from slavery and that it was Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt after destroying those who did not believe. Jesus is in the Old Testament and we have the authority of the New Testament. The very words of Paul here telling us so. So we are able to answer the question how the invisible God can appear to Abraham Moses, to be spoken to face to face as a man speaks to his friend or even physically wrestled with by Jacob. How is it that God can be visible when God tells Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live? Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. 
Jesus Christ is the one who makes the invisible visible. These appearances all, of course, happen before Christ's birth. But when Christ becomes flesh in Bethlehem, the world witnesses the ultimate theophany, the ultimate appearance of God. John 1 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen the glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. Basically, Christ has made the Father known. In the English, the word image might imply a copy. Or, you know, it's, it's kind of like God. But the Greek word doesn't imply this. It implies that Jesus is perfectly like the Father, revealing who he is in all his godliness. Once again, Exodus 20 forbids an image of worship because nothing else, no one else can be the image of God. Only Jesus appropriately reflects the character and nature of God. This means that God took on humanity. He walked the earth. He dwelt among us. Jesus' disposition towards me and you is not to hide from his church. He wants to be known by us, to be seen, to be interacted with, even wrestled with. God makes his people a stunning promise. I will make my dwelling among you and walk among you as Christ walked in Eden. The heart of God is to be physically, invisibly, and inseparably present with his people. In John 14, 8 through 9, Philip asked Jesus to see the Father, but Jesus responds by saying, I've been with you for so long. Philip asked, can I see God? Jesus said, I am God. As we go through this verse, there is a second part. The firstborn of all creation. I could say a ton on this, and it can be confusing, because some cults have actually taken this verse to say that Jesus is created. But this is not saying that he was born created, in the sense that he didn't exist beforehand. This is a title, and title of honor and respect. If you look at Revelations chapter 5, this sets the tone for what it means to be firstborn. God the Father is on the throne, and the scroll is in his hand, and the title deed to the earth sealed with seven seals, as was customary with Roman law. For sealing a will, or sealing a scroll, was sealed seven times so that no one could tamper or mess with the edict or what was being said. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? Who is the possessor of the earth? Who is the heir to take over the world? Who has the right to control the earth and to take it back, to inherit it? And no man on heaven and earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. John says, I cried a lot because nobody 
was found. Where is the firstborn? Where is the primary one? Where is the heir? Weep not, one of the elders said to me. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And I behold, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood the lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. He is Christ. Here he is taking the title deed to the earth as the firstborn to take over and reign as king of kings and lord of lords. From chapter 6 to 19 is the take over the earth. And finally, he reigns in chapter 20. Verse 13 echoes the sentiment and what we read before in our call to worship. Every creature that is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such are in the seas and all that are in them heard, heard, I say, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him, him that sits on the throne and unto the Lamb forever. You see, the universe echoes in chiming in. This is the worthy one. We'll revisit this a little bit later, but let's move on to verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created by Christ. This, of course, goes back to creation itself. Christ in the garden. Christ created Adam. That means that he was there before Adam. He was there before creation. How did God create? Well, uh, I'll spare you the theological term, but he said he created out of nothing. The idea that God created the universe out of nothing shouldn't come as a surprise because there was nothing at one point. Just stop and think about that for a second. We often think of nothing as just this black void or, or uh, you know, this empty room. There wasn't even that. I don't mean nothing like, you know, inside of a donut or a wallet or the amount of money I have in my wallet right now. Um, nothing long before the universe was brought into. Nothing. There was also God. God was there. So the point is, only God existed. If I have nothing, I can't create something with nothing. I don't know about you guys, but I can't take something and just will it to be something. But when God says in Genesis 1-1 that he created the heavens and the earth, he created from nothing. He willed it just by speaking it into existence. This is more than just knowing who created the world. This has profound implications on the way we see ourselves, others, and God himself. (coughs) Excuse me. Before creation, before anything, there was a perfect triune God. 
whose sole existence was to love and to worship each other. The three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, loved each other perfectly. It was a perfect triune, perfect, devote, devoted, unbreakable love. That means when God created all of us here, he created us all to exist. He made you in love and to be loved by him. God looks into your eyes and makes it clear that you exist and you're wanted despite what you may have been said or told by others. You're not an accident. God has a purpose for you. It was a loving God who made you He made you in irresistible and exuberant and overflowing love. The triune God who brought all the planets and oceans and creatures into existence also brought you into existence. The God who knows every star, who knows every every mystery in the world also knows you by name. And I think that's amazing to think about. Paul is trying to explain that out of love, Christ created you to experience his love and grace and to fully depend upon him and make much of the name of Jesus. I don't know about you, but the act of creation is something that at times I can't understand. I don't mean the concept of creation. I just know that I can't create something like this. So that should lead us to fully depend upon the creator. Not only did Jesus create, but as verse 17 tells us, the stability of the universe depends on Jesus' constant divine upholding. Without it, ever, without it, every creature of every kind, ourselves included, would cease to be. As Paul stated, he gives himself to all mankind, life and breath and everything. In him, we live and move and have our being, as Acts 17.25 says. Jesus is creator at the beginning of time, and he is creating now. He did miracles, and he does miracles now. He creates new babies being born every day. He is actively reorienting human hearts and directing, redirecting human desires. He is saving people and regenerating them. He is continuing to create new things that can't be explained in terms of anything that went before. It is beyond my power or your power to know the full creating power of God. Knowing that God was creator also shows us that he is sovereign Lord, that he is an eternal plan covering all events and destinies without exception, with power to redeem, recreate, and renew. As Psalms 104 says that when we trust in Jesus, we are trusting in the almighty creator. We are realizing that we have a moment-by-moment dependency on the very creator God, the God that holds the whole world together. Just as Paul learned this and, and was led to live a life of devotion and commitment and gratitude and loyalty, Paul is guiding us to trust in Jesus, holiness and godliness. When we see that Christ alone is God, ruler, creator, we see that he, is al- he alone is sufficient to bring us to sanctification, to grow us. All right, verse 17. And he is eternal. He is before all things. 
I think one of the biggest questions I get in youth ministry and my own kids is, where did God come from? The answer is, God has always been. He's always been here. Psalms 92, before, no, sorry, 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth or even formed the earth and the world, God formed them. Everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As we said before, God is different than us. We are created. He is creator. He is eternal, self-sustaining. He will never go out of existence, just as we will never live forever on this side of eternity. God continues unchanged forever. Often the theological word is used for this is a sadie, meaning that God has life in himself and draws his unending energy from himself, as the word means from himself. We fail when we try to put limits on God. God isn't limited and small because before him all things are sustained. It is from this doctrine that Paul points to the church. See, this is the foundation of which the church rests, is that we have an eternal God. All right, so let's go back to Matthew 16. He is the head of the body of the church. Matthew 16 says that Jesus is way up in Galilee. And he asks the disciples, what do people say I am? And they say, oh, you know, you're Ezekiel, uh, well, not Ezekiel, um, blanked on his name. Anyways, they said a whole bunch of stuff about who he was. And then he asked them, who do you think I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, heaven and earth has revealed this to you. My father who is in heaven revealed this to you. Peter was the first in a line of disciples where Christ is saying, I will build my church. This is interesting because all of a sudden he's talking about the church. None of the disciples asked him, what's a church? The word church is often used in the Old Testament Greek translation. When Stephen talks about the Old Testament believers in Acts chapter 7, he calls them the church in the wilderness. As Stephen has pointed out in Acts chapter 7, that this shows that the, there is a continuation of the church from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the people of God, the remnant. The church, or the Greek word in church, for church, can also be used to talk about, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought here. The church has its most basic meaning in being called out. So what I meant to say was that the Greek word can be also used as to call out, call out of something. Called out of the world, called into fellowship with one another, called in union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is what the church is called out of. The church is called out of the world and into fellowship with one another, into union and communion with Jesus. The body is a sentiment for the church, 
a metaphor that Paul uses in Colossians, Ephesians, Romans, Corinthians. He says in Romans 12, 5, one body in Christ, individuals, male, female, young and old, different gifts, but one body, one Christ. Something calls us on a Sunday morning to gather together as the people of God to worship. Singing praises to him, to thank him. We are many, but we are one. We're taking communion today, and uh, at one point, you know, we would all come together and, and pull off of one loaf, right? And that was before everyone got really germaphobic. Um, that was to symbolize that we are one body. We come together and we sing together, not because we're all good at singing, but because we sing as one body. We take communion as one body. 1 Corinthians 12, for just as the body is one, many are one body, and so it is with Christ. Where do you think that Paul got the idea of the body of Christ? Paul had a, a, a big, before him being saved, he had a big purpose, and that was to persecute the church, to get rid of those who followed Jesus. One of the things he was a part of was in Acts chapter 7 and 8, when Stephen was stoned. And I think he probably never forgot about this moment in his life. They came and they laid the cloaks in front of him, and he took responsibility for that. When Jesus appeared to him later on the road to Damascus, he said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I think Paul realizes that there was a vital connection. That when you laid a, a finger on the church, on those who are in Christ, you also laid a finger on Christ. And so there's this connection. The headship of Christ is exclusive to Colossians and Ephesians. And this shows us that there is a kingship to Christ. He is king. He is ruler. He is the government of Christ over the body, his church. Think about your own body. What causes you to move? It's your head. I do this. I do this. I do this. It doesn't look cool, but I do it. Uh, my, my head just told me to do that. The words I speak right now, my head told me to say. Um, you may lose an arm or a leg, uh, and that would not be good. But if you lose your head, you're, you're done. Um, yeah, I wanted to say a lot of jokes about that, but I'll hold it. Um, he is addressing the fact that, that we often forget this truth. In this church, they forgot that Christ was the head. Jesus is sole ruler of the church. Who is to say how the church is to be governed? Jesus does. Who is to say how we should worship? Jesus does. Who is to say what we believe? Jesus does. Who determines who is a true member of the church? Jesus does. Where is the ultimate experience to be found? The fullness in Jesus. In him, all things hold together, including the church. Back to being firstborn from the dead. Firstborn has a meaning of honor. Once again, he is also the beginning and the resurrection. 
He stands at the beginning of a resurrection that speaks of a greater resurrection to come. To affirm that when Jesus rose from the dead, it was also to affirm in anticipation that all believers, me and you, will rise from the dead when our bodies, yeah, after our bodies die. There is coming a day when Jesus will rise us from the dead and our bodies will be new. Sounds great. Um, In Corinthians, they were skeptical about this, and I'm sure this was part of their church as well. They were influenced by the philosophy of the day, which said that the flesh was gross and bad, the soul was good. That spilled over into the church. They would say things like, why would God raise this gross flesh? But 1 Corinthians 15 and if you think about it in Paul's sarcastic response back to them, that he will reanimate, remake our bodies. They had forgotten the power of God, that he's able to do exceedingly above all that we can ask or think. He can recreate your DNA and provide you with a better body, a stronger body, with minds that appear and are able to comprehend not having sin, or not being able to sin. God is able to do that. When you see Jesus, do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? I believe in the resurrection of the body. And it's it's an amazing thing. It is so amazing. What is imperishable shall give away to what is... What is imperishable shall give away to something... Oh, sorry. What is perishable shall give away to what is imperishable. God will give you a new body. And this is the hope that lies in being a Christian. He is the firstborn of the dead. His resurrection guarantees your resurrection. And the day will come when the dead in Christ shall rise. The trumpet shall sound and the dead shall rise. And everything, he might be preeminent. He doesn't just have it yet, but there's a day coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. There are governments, there are presidents, unbelievers, forces of darkness, Satan and his demons. They too one day will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are world religions that don't confess that Jesus is Lord, but one day they will. They will regret it at this point. As you think over who is Jesus... Think about it from this aspect. One day, you will kneel in complete submission to Christ. Either as a servant of Christ, as a child of God, as a beloved, or you will be subjugated, forced to, the way a defeated army would, the way an enemy of God would. Often the question is asked, do you have a relationship with Jesus? I would like to say that everyone has a relationship with Jesus. It just depends on how you define that relationship. Are you a child of God or are you an enemy of God, as Ephesians 2 tells us? You can either be part of the church or not. And if you're not, I, I want to encourage you to know that Christ is the greatest thing that has happened in all of human history. What the church has forgotten is they've gotten their eyes off of the glory and the greatness and the supremacy of Christ. It was the cause of all their problems 
and it is the cause of all our problems today. As one body only has one head, Paul tells us that Jesus is the head of the church. He alone is the leader of the church, meaning Jesus appoints pastors and elders and deacons who help and guard his body. Yes, they do have authority in the church, but they are not the head of the church, meaning their authority only comes from Jesus. The theological term is declarative, meaning that they can only declare to God's people what Christ has already spoken in his word. Their teaching has authority only insofar as it comes from the scripture. Leaders don't give life to the church. Leaders don't sustain the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He started the church, and he will see it through. One of my favorite quotes from Calvin is that he is the root from which the vital energy is diffused through all the members. So the life of the church flows out from Christ. The church finds life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does this mean? Every pastor, every elder, every church leader, even right now, me, right here, speaking to you, are only an instrument in the hand of God. Think of any tool you can think of, a hammer, a shovel. Do you think a hammer can hammer hammer a, a board together by itself? No, it can't. A shovel can't dig a hole by itself. They're only instruments in the hand of the builder. We are only instruments in the hands of God, and it's only the work of God that's going to sustain this church. At times, I, I feel like the last few months, it's felt a little unstable. And I want to let you know that Jesus is still head of the church. He is still leading us. He is still guiding us. If he can create the world, if he can sustain the church through the whole Old Testament, if he can take care of your sin on the cross, he can take care of every aspect of this church, including the leadership. He is our God. He is our Savior. A man is a man at best. Still a sinner, still imperfect, still not Jesus. So, who is Jesus to you? I want you to leave thinking about this. I want you to think about, you could be someone who has been part of the church your whole life and ask yourself, who is Jesus? Is he my Lord? Is he my Savior? Does he dominate my my heart and my mind? Do I not care about Jesus? Do I think of Jesus as another leader among religious leaders, someone who is just a great teacher, but not my Lord and Savior. I think the sermon has been clear that Jesus Christ alone is God. Jesus Christ alone is creator. Jesus Christ alone is Savior. And only he can save you. All right, let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the head of the church. Like I said before, may you lead our hearts and our minds. May you save those who don't know you and encourage those who do. May we be a church who is fully about you, Jesus. And from that, from that overflow of love of you and your grace that we would reach out to the people of Marblehead. 
in the North Shore, showing them and loving them and caring them and preaching the gospel to them. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.